I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. We are very nearing the end of uh, Luke 8. Uh, our plan is to finish it next week, and then we're going to transition into a uh, summer series in the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're in Luke 8, 26 to 39. I'd actually like to just pause for a moment of prayer again, if you would, while we're turning there, just for our time in the Word together. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll see what God has for us this morning. Uh, Lord God, thank you again for this time and this place that we can come together freely, we can worship you freely. Uh, Lord, we can uh, sit under the teaching of your word, confident, Lord, uh, not in any wisdom that I bring to the table, but Lord, that your wisdom is found in the scriptures. And God, that you have uh, blessed us with the opportunity now to hear from you. And so I pray, Lord, that that would be helpful for us. Uh, I pray, Lord, for each one, God, that wherever we are in our in our life, whatever we are in our, in our week, uh, Lord, I just pray that we would um, we'd have our ears open for what it is that you're saying to us specifically, and uh, I just pray for a spirit of protection and peace upon us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I'm not sure about you, but when I read through the Bible, there are certain uh, portions of Scripture that are a bit puzzling to me. Now, there's a lot of reasons why Scripture might be puzzling. Uh, I mean, a lot of the time we're reading sections about the grandeur and majesty of God. And so there's an element there of just, man, I can't comprehend what it is that we're, we're really discussing and, and learning about because God is, you know, infinite and omnipotent. There's other times in scripture where, you know, I just don't have enough uh, understanding of the cultural context. You know, I don't, I don't know enough about this specific region, this specific area. So, so I need to study more and then, you know, better understand what's being said. But there are other times where I understand uh, what is being said, I think, but it, it just seems a little strange. You know what I mean? Uh, there's one story where Jesus is healing someone uh, who's blind. And in this story, uh, to do that, Jesus uh, decides to spit into some dirt and make mud. And he puts it on the man's eyes, and the man is healed. And I know what happened. He, he was healed. It's amazing. It's miraculous. But I always am, am wondering, like, Jesus, why the, why the mud? Like, why, and why did you use your saliva? Like, what is, is, am I supposed to understand something about that? It's, it's confusing. Thankfully, uh, that's not our passage this morning, so I don't have to answer that. But uh, our passage this morning has another detail in it that I've always found a bit interesting. So here's the, just the Coles Notes version, very brief synopsis of our story this morning. Jesus encounters a man with a thousand demons inside him. That's not the strange part. The strange part is how he deals with it. He deals with it by sending all of these demons into a herd of pigs, and the pigs go down sort of this, this edge of a cliff, off the cliff, into the water, and they drown. And every time I've read that in the past, I've wondered, why, why pigs? Like, why this herd of pigs? Jesus, why didn't you just tell the demons to get lost? I don't, never understood. So, we're going to answer that question this morning, along with a number of others. Uh, our title for this morning is this, Demons, Pigs, and the Lordship of Jesus. It's going to be great. Uh, it really is a fantastic and significant part of the Gospels because in it we get a glimpse behind the material world that we see to the spiritual battles that are going on. That's, that's amazing, interesting, fascinating. We also get one of the most dramatic pictures of, of healing, of a person who, who comes from being oppressed by the dark forces in their life to complete healing. It's amazing to see that transformation. And finally, we see uh, here very clearly that Jesus has authority over every, everything in the world, everything in the universe, both material and spiritual. In fact, that's going to be our key idea. So one big idea, I'm going to give it to you on the front end. It's simply this. Jesus is Lord of all. 
We're going to work through this text uh, in four parts, four parts for our sermon. We're going to read it kind of as we go. So four parts, but one idea that we're going to see throughout the whole thing, which is Jesus is Lord of all. So here's part one, Jesus versus demons. I'm going to read the first big chunk of scripture so we kind of get the, the gist of the story here. This is beginning in verse 26 of Luke 8. When they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to enter the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So we're going to pause there. There's a bit more. We're going to pause there and look at the first part, which is clearly Jesus versus demons. Uh, look again at the first couple of verses just to set the stage for us. So then they sailed. This is Jesus and his disciples, his 12 disciples again, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, sometimes in other gospels, it's translated Gadarenes, uh, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, before we get into the specific interchange kind of battle between Jesus and these demons, I thought it might be helpful just to answer, uh, ask and answer some basic questions about demons. Uh, just a bit of demonology 101, okay? Just because it's not something we often talk about. Uh, if you're new here with us, new to the church, you might be wondering, is this, do we talk about this kind of stuff all the time? Is that what church is about? It's kind of weird things? And the answer is kind of. <laughs> D- depends, on, depends on the text. We read through the Bible, so whatever comes up, we, we work through it. But we, what we'll find in the Bible is a lot of references to Satan and demons. So I want to just ask and answer three basic questions just so we kind of know what's going on. First question, who or what are demons? Uh, Demons, like Satan, are fallen angels. That's the best way to describe them. They are fallen angels, which means they are spiritual beings. Uh, There's quite a few references to Satan and demons throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, nine books of the Old Testament refer to Satan in some way. And you might be surprised to know every single book of the New Testament has some reference to either angels, demons, or, or Satan. So this is, this is a part of the biblical narrative, biblical understanding. Uh, in Jude 6, we get some insight into the origin of the demons. Uh, it says this, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, that's Jesus, or God, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there we see that uh, demons were angels to begin with but they left their proper authority. They rebelled against God, followed Satan into sin, and because of that, were then cast out of heaven and are now kept in gloomy darkness and chains. Now, that doesn't mean that they're separated from us and from the world. It means that whatever power they have, there's some constraints on them uh, by God. We also see from the New Testament that uh, Satan, or the devil, he is the head of the demons, 
And we see this in Ephesians 6. It talks about kind of the organization and, and the, the power and purpose that they have. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, For we, that's uh, Christians, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, who and what are demons? They are essentially fallen angels that have now come to earth and are wreaking havoc. Uh, it's basically impossible to have a biblical view of things without acknowledging the presence of these spiritual beings. Material world and spiritual world both are real from the Bible's point of view. So next question, what do these demons want? It's sort of clear just from looking at their origin story. Uh, originally, they were created like all the angels to serve God, glorify God both in heaven and on earth. And now in opposing God, their, their purpose is the opposite. Their desire is to oppose God in every way possible. They want to interfere with his plans. They want to dishonor his name. And one of the best ways to do that is to corrupt and destroy the creatures that bear the image of God, which is us. Human beings are one of the, the major battlefields when it comes to this dynamic, spiritual dynamic between good and evil. So there is a cosmic war. We are one of the main battlefields. Uh, if you think about God's plan for the world and for humanity right from the beginning, it was that we would go out into the world, we would bear the image of God, we would glorify God in the way that we think and believe and act. Well, Satan's desire is the exact opposite. His desire is that humanity would be so broken, so corrupt, so faithless, that the glorious image of God that is in each human being would be almost unrecognizable. And in fact, if you look at our text this morning, you can see that. You can see that level of distortion and wretchedness in this poor man that has been afflicted with these demons. So last question, how should we think about demons? How should we think about the, the spiritual world? Well, for that, I'm going to turn to C.S. Lewis, uh, who has this, uh, I think, great quote, which just helps to to address the two extremes that we could have as we think about demons. Uh, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail materialist and magician with the same delight. So there you see some of the pitfalls that that Christians and non-believers tend to fall into. Non-believers tend to disregard the spiritual world. The material world seems much more real. But as believers, we can very often get so interested in the spiritual world that, that we kind of see everything through that lens. And the danger of that is, is that we, we miss a whole lot of what God is doing, but also we, we can very easily lay the blame of every, every bad thing, every difficulty, every trial in our lives on the demons that might be present there. And so we tend to sometimes absolve ourselves of any of the, the weight of our own sin. What we see in the Bible is that the main answer to the troubles in our lives is usually repentance rather than an exorcism. And so for us to be able to ha have this, this balance, the, the biblical answer to how we should think about demons is, is essentially that we should not minimize them nor exaggerate them. In fact, that's what you find in our text. The demons are affirmed, but not sensationalized. In fact, Jesus, when he gets out of the boat, he doesn't have much of a reaction at all. He's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I figured this would happen. And he's saying that's essentially what should be true of us as well. We're going to talk a bit more about kind of spiritual warfare in a moment. 
But for the, just for the sake of understanding demons and, and where they fit into things, even in this text, they are not the focus uh, of the attention of those who believe in Christ. In fact, Jesus is the focus. Jesus is Lord of all, and so we see everything through, through that lens, and uh, the way that this scene plays out makes it very clear. So let's go back to the text and see the interaction here. Again, Jesus versus the demons, but you can see that it's really not much of a contest. Uh, look at verses 27b and 29b. Here we see the amount of power that the demons have, and it is considerable in relation to human beings. Uh, look here, the effects they've had on this poor man. It says, For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So this man is, is powerless. This man is not a believer. He doesn't have the spirit of God to protect him. He's, he's been over, overcome and overrun by these demons. And we see the amount of power they have. It is considerable. If he had a family, if he had a home, he's, he's no longer able to connect with them. Anyone who comes close, is, he rages against them. In, in the Gospel of Mark, it talks about him cutting himself, harming himself. There's a destructive power that is wreaking havoc on his life. That is the demonic presence that is there within him. But you notice that that power is no match for Jesus. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, they don't even put up a fight. Look at verse 28 and 29. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. The image I have here is, is of kind of pack animals. You know where there's an alpha male who, who's established himself as, as the strong lion or the strong wolf? And so whenever that alpha male steps into the clearing, everyone else defers to him immediately. Because he's already established the fact. He's already beaten everyone. They know who he is. And so they, they give him the best carcass. I don't know what they eat. They, you know, things. That's what's happening here. They, they are, you notice the demons. They know who Jesus is already. Because they've seen him. Probably the last time they saw him was in heaven. When he was casting them out of heaven. He had already defeated them. They knew that right away. So they, they don't even try to come into confrontation with him. They right away, they, they lay down before him. They just beg for mercy. And look at what Jesus says in verse 30. He asked, he asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to enter into the abyss. So there the word legion uh, usually is associated with a Roman legion, which would have 6,000 men and 120 horsemen. And so we can assume there's thousands of demons inside this poor man. And even though they outnumber Jesus by thousands to one, you see their request, they're pleading, please do not send us into the abyss, which is another word for hell. It's interesting that the demons, they already know where they're going to end up. We see throughout scripture, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew, Revelation makes it really clear. There is an end game for the demonic powers. It is in hell. That's where they will go. And you notice for the, for the demons, they aren't sure maybe today's the day that they're going to go there. They're in this, in God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign timing, he has allowed the demons to have some power on this earth. There will be a day when that ends. In the meantime, we see the demons doing what they want to do, which is to cause as much chaos as possible. They've gone after this man for the sake 
of ruining the, whatever glory God might want to work in his life. So I think we should talk for a moment about this, this conflict, this spiritual warfare that we see happening here because it hasn't ended. That day was not judgment day, and today is not yet judgment day, which means that there still is this conflict going on. So spiritual warfare is the biblical idea that yes, yes, in fact, there is a war going on between evil and good, and yes, in fact, we are involved in it. As we can see, it's not a, it's not a war between equal sides, and there is no doubt about the outcome, but it is still a battle, and we should be mindful of it. See, more than likely, if, if you're a Christian here, and you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you, you've been really trying to live out your faith, meaning you found yourselves in positions where you followed the leading of God, and you've really wanted to make an impact on the world around you, you've, you've said, God, what, you know, I'll speak to that person, I'll go here, I'll do that, whatever it is, however you want to use me, Lord, I, I want to do that, I want to be obedient, I want to be fruitful. Very often in those times, we, we will... We will encounter opposition. Now, it comes in a variety of forms. Uh, one of the most common forms of, of spiritual warfare for the Christian is simply a temptation to sin. We see that very clearly. I mean, what did Satan do with Jesus when he began his ministry? Led him in, or went into the wilderness. The Spirit of God led him there, but then Satan met him there and tried to tempt him again and again to put something else before God, to love something more than God. And in our lives, the very same thing happens. And the Bible says, look, part of that is, is spiritual warfare. It's that the, you have an enemy, and he very much wants for you to abandon your faith and to love anything else more than, more than God. Sometimes, though, it can be simply a, a feeling of, of guilt or worthlessness. Very often, we're tempted to believe lies about ourselves, that rather than being redeemed, we, we are guilty. Because of the sin in our lives, God couldn't possibly love us. We, we sometimes think to ourselves or, or hear to ourselves, look, we're worthless. We're, all of these things are, are lies, not based on the gospel, but, but based on what Satan wants us to believe about ourselves. Satan is a liar and a deceiver, and he seeks to deceive us to a place where we will become so discouraged that we will abandon our faith. There are, though, sometimes where there are more noticeable uh, spiritual attacks. Uh, for our family, we have experienced a number of these uh, over the years. Uh, as I thought about it and talked with Don about it, we, we realized that it most uh, often happened for us at a time when we were in a transition point in our ministry. We had left Willingdon Church, gone to Westside Church, moved our family to the North Shore, and it was a time where God was preparing us. We didn't know it at the time, but for this, for Tri-City Church. But during that time especially, uh, we would encounter a lot of uh, spiritual attacks. Our kids would, would wake up with night terrors, not just bad dreams, but they would, they would point to things in the room. Um, Dawn would experience a lot of these kinds of, of things where she would, she would wake up, she would see you know, dark things hovering over her. There was times where she was pinned on the bed and, and couldn't move. Uh, there was one time where we were going to meet with someone to counsel them, and Dawn just broke out on this rash. She was feeling horrible and sick. I just prayed for her, and as they walked through the door, she, it went away. There's these kinds of things that you wonder, what, what, what exactly is going on here? What, what is, what are we, how are we to understand these types of supernatural things that are clearly designed to scare us, to make us fearful, to unsettle our faith? And what we see here in the scriptures that this is to be expected, that there is in fact an enemy. 
And you notice that, again, for Jesus, he's not put out by this. He expects this kind of opposition in his ministry, and he clearly indicates that this is the kind of thing that we should expect if we are to follow him. In those moments, when you're experiencing something that, that clearly is beyond you and, and it, it's unsettling, it's great, what, what should we do? Well, we need to remember who's who. Who's involved in that, in that situation and what's true about them. I want you to look at 1 John 4.4. 4. Uh, This is the Apostle John speaking to uh, Christians. And he says, little children, you are from God. So reminding us who we are. You are from God and have overcome them. In the context here, he's speaking about the powers of darkness. You've overcome them. For he who is in you, that's the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world. That's Satan. See, in any time that we come against some, some form of spiritual attack, even if it's temptation to sin, if it's something, something that we see or hear that just, man, we don't know what's going on, we need to remember who's who. Who is Lord of everything and everyone? It's Jesus Christ. And if we're a believer, whose spirit is within us? It's Jesus Christ. That gives us the answer that we need in those moments where we feel totally out of our depths. What are we to do? We, we are to pray. We pray in the name of Jesus. We pray for protection. We pray for perseverance. That's how I pray for my family most nights now. I just pray, Lord, I just pray you'd protect us from the enemy. Lord, we know he's out there. You know he's out there. We're not afraid. We're not overly concerned, but we are mindful. And we remember who we are and whose we are. In that, we have confidence, we have security, and we have, we have freedom. Because it's Jesus who is Lord of all. Look again here at James 4, 7, where it says simply this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him how? Not in our own strength, not with a whole bunch of fanfare and and crazy spiritual things. We simply do what we do as Christians, what we always do. We, We appeal to Christ for help and we trust that he will help us. And what we have here in our text is just a very vivid picture of of the conflict that is around us that we don't usually see and the power discrepancy between those agents of the enemy and Jesus himself. You'll notice here that that if anyone is freaking out in this situation, it's it's the demons. They're the ones who are begging. They're the ones who are pleading. That They're hoping that this day is not judgment day. And so they cast their eyes, their thousands of eyes around, they look for another alternative of what Jesus could do with them, they know that he's not going to let them stay in that man. And they see these pigs. This is where the pigs come in. Part two. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Here's our title. Uh, Part two. When pigs don't fly. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Look at what happens next. Verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So, of course, the big question is, why, why do it this way? Why not do something else, Jesus? Why, why put them in the pigs? Why not just send them on their way? Well, uh, there's two good answers. The first one is pretty good. The, the second one is the best answer. The first, the first answer that we need to understand is, uh, in that culture, pigs were considered to be unclean. They were unclean animals, not kosher. Uh, a, a faithful Jew is not allowed to be near pigs or touch pigs. And so what you have is an unclean receptacle for an unclean spirit. Just like if you're, you know, digging out behind the fridge and getting the grime and dirt, when you, when you get that pile of gunge, 
you don't look around and put it in the flower vase or, or in the water jug, right? You look for the, the garbage can, better yet, the grimy garbage can that's down in the garage, right? Something filthy and unclean goes there. We have a, a parallel, a match, where these unclean, filthy spiritual beings are put into these unclean animals. That's part of the answer. But the better answer, the best answer is simply this, that these pigs, these pigs lived and died for the glory of God. They lived for the glory of God because everything that exists, every created thing glorifies God. The the massive humpback whale, the tiny mosquito, all of those creatures testify to the creative power of God. They say, "Look, look at the intelligence, the creativity, the power of God. So the pigs glorified God in that way, but in their death, they glorified God even more. Because through them, Jesus demonstrated his divine power over the dark spiritual forces that exist. And through them, we we were given a gripping visual picture of what exactly Jesus had done for this man. He had removed these thousands of demons from this man. No one could see that. Spiritual beings, they're invisible. So he would say the words, the people around would say, I I guess things have gone well. But in this instance, they then saw the, the herd of of pigs. Now just imagine that. That's a lot of pigs. 2,000 pigs. All of a sudden, the, the spirits enter these pigs and, and they, are, they are shocked. The, the, the evil, destructive power that is now within them compels them to cascade down this hillside, crash over the, the cliff. Just imagine the visual of that, the squealing as they enter the water and they descend into a watery grave. The picture that is crystal clear is that these demons are not able to go out into the countryside to afflict anyone else. They're not able to go and do whatever they want. Jesus has put them in a place where they will be contained in the water for the good of the man and for the good of everyone around there. This was, this was a picture that God wanted us to have to encourage us in our faith. That whenever we encounter any, any form of spiritual oppression, we can remember what happens when, when Jesus speaks, when Jesus commands, that the demons have to move, they have to flee, they have to obey him. The pigs were an essential part of demonstrating the full extent of this miracle. God was indeed glorified and the lordship of Christ was magnified. Jesus is Lord of all. When he speaks, everyone, both in the material world and the spiritual world, obeys. So the pigs was the perfect thing at the perfect time, even though it's a little weird. Okay, that's the second part. Part three, we want to focus our attention not just on the dynamic between Jesus and the demons, but remember, there's a man there. There's a man who's been afflicted for years, and now his life is completely changed. So part three, here, we, here the title is Complete Healing. Let's look at uh, verses 34 and 36. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So you can imagine people coming from the countryside. They knew this man. They had probably for years intentionally gone around the area where this man was kind of raving. They had tried to um, restrain him. That never worked. 
They, they probably knew his family. They had mourned the, the loss of this man's healthy life. Now he was cast out. He was harmed to himself and to anyone else. But now look at the change. The man who was once naked is now clothed. The man who was once a raving lunatic, cutting himself, raging at anyone who would come close to him, now is in his right mind. The man who was forced to roam wild was now sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. And you can imagine the townspeople coming and saying, how, how did this happen? What, what, we, we know this guy. What happened here? And the herdsman would, would be at that point pointing, well, well, he did it. Jesus, the rabbi, the man called him son of the most high God. See, this scene is not just a powerful picture of the lordship of Jesus. It's also a powerful picture of what kind of Lord Jesus is in the effect that he has when someone's life is consumed with his power and his love. See, here we see a, a distinct difference, don't we? I mean, it's a stark contrast. It's difficult for us to fully appreciate it because we just met this man. But what if he had a wife? What if he had kids? What if they haven't been able to just sit with him for years and years because of what's been going on in his life and now they come and they, they see the healing that has taken place? It reminds me of a, of a quote by uh, J.C. Ryle. He's a, a British pastor from uh, the 1800s. He says this, Never is a man in his right mind till he is converted or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus or rightly clothed until he is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that in our culture there's a real effort to find healing. I did a Google search on the term holistic healing, and there's a lot of stuff that came up. There's holistic dentists. There's holistic, you know, exercise stuff. There's even a holistic pet nutrition center, which I don't know what that is, but <laughs> there's a real sense that the human, human beings, we don't just need physical help or mental help. We also need spiritual help. What we see here with Jesus is what we always see with Jesus is that when anyone comes to him with any, any issue, they, they go away completely healed. Have you noticed that? The paralytic comes. I can't walk. Jesus, his friends, he needs help. Jesus says, yeah, I'm gonna make you walk, but also your sins are forgiven. Everyone who encounters Jesus always goes away completely healed. This man is one of the most dramatic pictures of it. Just think for a moment of where this man would be if he lived today. I mean, hopefully he would be in a, a mental health ward. He would be under the care of people who, who really want to help make him better. Hopefully, I say, because hopefully he would not be on the streets, which is sometimes the case. But, but in, that, in that desire to care for this man, what would be missed probably is the spiritual side of him. And notice that that was, that was really the side that needed to be cared for. That what he really needed was spiritual healing. Not that we shouldn't go to a doctor when our body is broken. Not that we shouldn't go to a mental health care practitioner when there's something broken in our mind. But what we need not, what we should never forget is that true healing, essential healing comes from knowing who we are in Christ. And that very often the best thing that we can do for ourselves or for others is to pray for them 
is to introduce them to the healing power of Jesus. Here this man is renewed from the inside out. And if there's anyone here this morning that is feeling a sense of unrest, feeling a sense of of turmoil and conflict, that is the human condition. But my hope is that you see the value and benefit of what, what Jesus does when we come to him, we submit to him. We recognize that there is a darkness not only outside of us, but within us in our sin. See, that's, that's, that's the essential difference. That's the essential thing that Jesus brings that no one else can bring is an answer to the darkness within us. And here we see a man, and his life has begun again. It glorifies God. It shows the lordship of Jesus over everything that threatens us. The challenge, though, the thing that, the challenge for most people, though, for all of us when we, when we get to know Jesus a little bit is, is will we accept him completely? How will we respond? And in fact, in the last portion of this passage, we have two, the most, probably the most common responses that we have to Jesus are present here. So we're going to look at both of them in our, our fourth and final point, which is just responding to Jesus. The, the first response is from the townspeople, and there we see fear. Look at uh, verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. They asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So we got into the boat and returned. Now that's really interesting. Because if you think about what they were afraid of, probably for the past few years, they've been afraid of this, of this madman. The, the man who was afflicted by demons, they would, they would avoid him. They, would, they were certainly fearful of him. They, he couldn't come near the town. They would try to bind him. and So they were afraid. But now they come and see him in his right mind and they're still afraid. There's great fear. And they're, they're afraid of Jesus. Why would, why would they be afraid of Jesus? Well, it's because they they immediately see something. They see the change that Jesus has made in this man's life, but they also see, they also see a herd of pigs that's gone. And they, they intuitively realize something, that if Jesus sticks around, it's not going to be business as usual. See, if Jesus sticks around, I mean, he, he changed that man's life, but, but that might mean that he wants us to change too. And see, that's always the rub. That, that's always the most difficult thing for us to understand and accept. I mean, it's one thing to, to understand who Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, that he's brought healing to our lives. It's another thing to accept him as Lord of our lives. Have you ever noticed how many people, I mean, I don't know if you've known people like this, have, a, have kind of a dramatic encounter with God, and yet their lives don't change. There was a, a kind of a strange interaction I had uh, a little while ago. Uh, I was sending a text message to someone from the church saying I was praying for them. It was like in the morning. I was like, oh, I'm going to pray for them. So I sent a text message uh, kind of before the kids get ready for school. So I sent the message, and a few minutes later, I got a text message back. And it was from someone else. I had texted the wrong person. And this other person said, hey, um, sorry, this is so-and-so, not so-and-so. Um, you got the wrong guy. I'm... I'm so-and-so from baseball. I was like, baseball? It's like two years ago we played baseball. So I texted some guy, the same name, about this. And, uh, you know, the text message said, you know, it's not me. Sorry about your, your friend that you're praying for, I guess. And, 
I texted back, hey, sorry about that. You know, my mistake. I got to figure out what the right contact is. Getting the kids ready for, uh, you know, doing breakfast. And, and then he texts back again. And he said, uh, hey, how's it going? I'm like, I don't know. It's been two years. Like, we're texting. I don't know. Uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, it's going great. How about you? Get the kids in the car. Just before we drive off, he texts back. Uh, actually, it's not really going very well. It's actually kind of a tough time right now. Oh, so I, my ears kind of perk up a bit, and so not as I'm driving. After the kids are dropped off, I text back, oh, man, what's going on? I said, look, uh, you know, he already knows I'm a pastor. Maybe uh, I'd offer the same thing to you as I did that other person. Can I pray for you? So we end up texting. We end up talking. What I find out is that that morning, before that man received a text from me, he was in his bed literally yelling at God. He was in such a low point in his life. He didn't believe in God, but he had started praying. And nothing had been happening. And so what he told me, we talked on the phone that day. He said, I was, I was yelling at God. God, if you're there, why aren't you fixing anything? Why aren't you doing anything? There's all these things where I've been praying about it. Nothing's working. Where are you? A few minutes later, a text message from me, who we haven't talked in two years, saying, hey, I'm praying for you. He was, he was floored. He was like, I don't know. Am I crazy? Like, why, what's going on? I said, no, you're not, you're not crazy. I think God is answering your prayer. Let me pray for you. Let me talk to you. We, we talked a long time. We texted back and forth. I invited him to church. You know, I said, look, I think, I think God might be trying to speak to you. Do, you. do you want that? He said, yeah. He said, I think I, I know that my life needs to change. Great. Let's talk about that. Here's the thing. I haven't yet seen him, you know? I mean, I don't know. I, I hope and pray that he will still come to gather with us at the church. I still text sometimes. Sometimes we pray, but... But it just struck me, man, there there are times when we experience God in an amazing way, and yet, when it comes to the point of actually life change, man, it's hard to cross that threshold. Why? Because because it's scary, isn't it? What's going to happen? How is my life going to change? For us as human beings, the life that we know, even if we know it's on the wrong path, it's familiar, it's comfortable, and we sometimes prefer it to whatever it is that God might want to do. But listen, do you see what Jesus does in the lives of the people that he connects with? Do you see the picture of this man? It's there for a reason. Jesus wants for us to see the difference when we allow Jesus to be Lord of our life and when there's some other, even if it's us in charge, it never goes well. And yet with Christ, yes, he will bring change, but it will be, it will be change for the better. And what you noticed here in this text, the last line, what you see, the man who experienced Christ, he only wants more of him. He's not having buyer's remorse. Look at the last verse. This is verse 38, where where it says this. I can't find it. Here it is. Verse 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see the difference? The townspeople on the threshold of, man, if, if we allow Jesus to be here longer, if we maybe start to believe in him and there's going to be change, we're not sure about that, Jesus. You got you to go away. The man who had experienced Christ, he says, Jesus, take me with you. I want more of you. Whatever it is that you've done, I've tasted, I want more of that in my life. See, what he knows is that the change that Jesus brings is always for our good. 
that yes, it's sometimes difficult. You, you may be in a season where you're sensing Jesus compelling you, speaking to you, maybe through your devotions, through others. You're like, I know I, know I need to change. Jesus is wanting me to, to change here, but man, I'm, I'm just, I'm afraid. I don't know. You do know. You know what it means to follow Christ. If you look back on your life and you've journeyed with him for any length of time, even the difficult things, haven't they been good? Haven't they been for your good? That's all he wants to do in the future is more and more of that. See, this is a picture of of Jesus as Lord of all. And, And that's our big idea. Jesus is Lord of all and he is working. He is working for our good in every level of our lives, materially, spiritually, emotionally, physically. This picture that we have is not is not the promise that tomorrow everything will be fixed. But it is the promise that eventually it will. That in God's good timing, what you're seeing here with this man, calmly sitting by the feet of Jesus, is a picture of of us in the presence of Christ in heaven. That that is the promise. That every moment of every day from now until then, Jesus will be working for our good. And that any opposition, whether it's in our own hearts, our own fear, our own reluctance, or out there, the demonic spiritual forces that want to to derail our faith, Jesus is saying, look, I'm Lord of it all. Trust me, follow me. But we do need to respond. We can't sit on the fence forever. And Jesus is saying, look, with, with me there is complete healing. With me you can be sure that the power in your life is for you and is more powerful than anything else that is out there. So that's God's word to us this morning, that we might have confidence in the Lordship of Christ and the reality of it in our lives for those who believe. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we are thankful. Jesus, thankful for this, for this passage, for this amazing story, this real-life event that happened years ago, and yet mirrors the work that you want to do in our lives this very day. Jesus, each one of us, Lord, there are areas of your life, my life, where I still resist change. I still resist allowing you to be Lord over certain areas of my life. Jesus, I pray that you would help me to humble myself, Lord, to to repent of that sin, to trust you fully. I pray, God, for those here who have maybe been just thinking about what it might be to to follow you, what what it might be like to be a Christian. Lord, I pray that you would give them the spiritual strength, the internal strength to simply submit, to humble themselves to recognize that with you at the helm, things always go well, things always work for our good, but if we try to keep it to ourselves, we end up in places that are full of destruction. God, I pray for each one here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you fully and truly and to affirm your lordship of our life. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be made known that like this man, we would, we would go out, we would proclaim, we would tell others so that many more would be healed. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.